Hey, welcome all you guys. Good to see y'all. Hope you're all having fun. Everybody here, Lamb Chop, Space Ace, Paul Osborne, you're here. Teresa Pittman, good to see you. Health Hollow, Heath Hollow, Cherish, Teresa Pittman, Tim Rathbone, all of you guys. Welcome to the Backyard Professor Sunday Night Firesides. Yeah, baby. That's what I'm talking about. Hey, we are going to get some t-shirts with the Backyard Professor. Yeah, baby. Yeah. We're going to make this happen, man. I have a great, great show tonight for you. I am really excited to share the information that I've got coming up. Hope that not, light's not blurring too bad. If not, I can put my fat head in front of it. Woohoo! Maybe I can turn this a little bit now. Forget it. I've got this board here. I'm going to use it right here. But anyway, let's get started. It's almost six o'clock. I'm getting a little bit started early. Not bad, though. Dan Vogel, good to meet you. Good to see you again, I mean. <laughs> hey, I watched your new video on Freemasonry. Sensational. I'll give you a heads up on that. Hey, everybody, you got to watch Dan Vogel's new video. Brand new out. Just... Uh, Yesterday or the day before on uh, Freemasonry, it is exceptionally well done, as usual. I can't keep up with all these guys and their goodies, man. I keep trying, and I can't do it. So uh, I also have a little bit of news real quick to share with all of you, my wonderful people. Dan told me in a phone conversation this last week we were talking on the phone and kind of you know shooting the breeze and having a good time and eating some pizza i hope i'm not letting the cat out of the bag dan but anyway he's got a new manuscript that he's turned in so soon we can expect ha -ha, yet another dan vogel book to read yeah i'm excited about that too so just know he is busy producing books like crazy when he's not making videos and when he's not writing articles. I mean, you can't help it. We love this guy. He's awesome. Paul Osborne, my dear and good friend online, my fellow apologist back in the day, 15, 20 years ago when I was at FAIR, Paul never really did join FAIR. He uh, he was kind of an independent arch, uh, Egyptologist. Yeah, archaeologist too. What a, whatever. <laughs> now, Paul's specialty is Egyptology, the Joseph Smith papyri, the Book of Abraham, the Book of Abraham facsimiles, the Book of Abraham story, Egyptian history, ancient history, and you name it, this guy does it. I've been fortunate to know Paul for the last decade or more, and uh, we have become good friends, and he has been... Oh, continually regurgitating materials that the apologists have been throwing out in order to defend the book of Abraham. And uh, Paul has, well, let's just put it this way. Basically, uh, Paul has done the same thing that I have done. Uh, and it wasn't just any one thing for me, I'm not sure if it is for Paul either, but but really, truly, the smoking gun, the shelf breaker, once you begin to look 
at the evidence itself for yourself and quit defending everybody else's interpretations and views. Don't do that. Just take a look at it yourself. Uh, that's when my shelf broke. And, and I mean, that was one of the main things. Now, I love to get into, uh, I mean, I suck at philosophy. I'm not saying I'm real good at philosophy. You know, I've read several of the good philosophers, but not religiously, but I, I'm aware of them. Ancient history a little bit. I'm not a master of any of it, but I have done quite a bit of reading in it. Of course, because I was at the time I was an apologist, I was trying to emulate Hugh Nibley. And uh, when I began to look at the evidence, the book of Abraham is the smoking gun. Uh, there is no doubt in my mind. Now, I'm going to say something to you that probably you may or may not agree with um, immediately. And I understand it's it's all good. It's all good. But the evidence is out there for you to go check for yourself were you to care to. And I would seriously advise that you do that also. Hey, Max George, good to see you, my friend. Uh, Mike Langley, good to see you. Doug Vincent, good to see you, my brother. Coco B, good to see you. Anyway, uh, this last week has been a very serious reading week for me because I want to do Paul's materials justice, and I'm not going to be able to. Uh, it, it's overwhelming. Uh, this man... He has already written five or six books worth of information, and it's all online. It's all for free. I'm I'm stone cold serious. And so this last week, <laughs> I began looking up, and I have them here on my computer, and I, I've outlined a few of his items, and I have some of the threads on computer that I'm going to read from you and an approach, and I'm going to share with you some of Paul's approaches to all of this with the book of Abraham. The one thing I discovered this week that I never would have otherwise, ever, I've been through several of his threads. Now, you have to understand, some of Paul's Osborne threads on the uh, Mormon discussion, no, not Mormon, discuss Mormonism, Shades message board, some of his threads are over 40 pages. Some of them are over 80 pages. And there's many, many, many posts in each page. And Paul brings in the photographs and he analyzes the photographs and he'll translate the Egyptian for you. And then if an apologist doesn't, if an apologist brings out an argument, Paul just simply guides the apologist through his argument and shows him the problem of the argument. And it does not matter which apologist. Here's what shocked me, what I discovered about Paul. And I hope he's not listening because it's going to swell his fat head. <laughs> Woohoo! Here we go, Paul. You ready? I can't find, and, and I have truly read. 700 pages of Paul Osborne's writings this week with his interactions. I can't find where 
Paul has ever been refuted. And I ju- that dawned on me yesterday. And I spent 12 hours yesterday looking through some more threads. I have never seen this man lose an argument in a discussion. And I, I mean, it doesn't matter whether it's something Joseph Smith said about the Council of the 50 or the the uh, the city of Enoch or something with Zion's order or Zion's camp. It's irrelevant whether it's about the facsimiles in the book of Abraham or the papyri or whatever. Paul is like the linebacker that the other team's running backs, once they get the football, they can't even make it back to the line of scrimmage. Paul is there. Smacking them behind the line of scrimmage and tackling them every time. It's amazing. And what I'd like to do is uh, now I have outlined a couple of his items so that I could I can talk to you, you know. But I really do want to read how Paul Osborne. It doesn't matter, you guys. I mean, Jeff Lindsay. It doesn't matter. Pearl of Great Price Central. Every online apologist or every online message board or every online Mormon apologetic blog or every online whoever, Steve Smoot, Terrell Givens, Hugh Nibley, John Gee, Carrie Moolstein, Michael Dennis Rhodes. It is ir relevant who when Paul finds an error in their or an outright lie or a deceptive approach or a sneaky little approach when they try to get our eye off the prize you know take our eye off the ball oh look at this stuff over here he even beats them at their own forte when they really do want to get to the divine authenticity of the antiquity of the book of Abraham, Paul Osborne beats him on that too. Uh, The man is a one-man football team, and he is as big as the football field. It is breathtaking. I know. I'm ranting and raving. Let me get on with this. Paul has also made some serious, serious, important new discoveries. And I want to share what I consider to be one of the best ones right now up front. This is so good. And I do have, I do have some photographs of this. I will show you as I can, uh, because this is so significant and it's because he's always relentlessly Turning and returning and returning and returning to the materials and learning. Now, I'm going to brag a little bit here. I suspect I might have had a small part in Paul's approach in some respects. I think he already had this, but I really emphasized it a few years back, five or six years ago. When I quit being an apologist, I actually got on the phone with a with my my most difficult rival, Randy Jordan. 
And I talked to him one-on-one -on, -one on the phone. And he told me, he said, you know why we always defeated you? And I said, no. And he said, because we always quoted Joseph Smith back at you. Oh, wow. Bombshell. You, the critics, were quoting Joseph Smith to me, the man who was defending Joseph Smith? And he said, yes, because you apologists don't defend Joseph Smith. You don't even know half of what he said because you've read the whitewashed version. The advantage now that we have is the Joseph Smith papers have put it all online. All of the stuff I'm going to show you and tell you about today is online. It's available. Or you can buy the book in the Joseph Smith papers. You ought to just get photographs. They're spectacular. Paul has discovered something. The way he funnels it back to what Joseph Smith said never ceases to astonish me. I mean, if someone, like, there's a particular character online, MG, mental gymnast, <laughs> that comes onto the message boards, and he tinker toys around, and he started picking on Paul, so to speak, and he started trying to show how Joseph Smith didn't really consider the book of Abraham scripture after all, and that... Uh, he didn't try to canonize it, and therefore, maybe all of this arguing against the book of Abraham is a waste of time, and there's nothing that is uh, condemning Joseph Smith, right? He's trying, of course, to downplay the book of Abraham and get rid of it because Joseph Smith loses on this subject, and Paul just simply gracefully started talking to him. Okay, mental gymnast, well, what about this? What about Joseph Smith saying this? What about Joseph Smith saying this? Paul brings up articles out of the Times and Seasons, November 1st, 1843, for instance. He brings up articles from Oliver Cowdery in The Messenger and Advocate. He'll bring up an article by Wilford Woodruff. He'll bring up an article by whoever, Batman and Robin and Superman and Aquaman. Paul just knows where to go to give us the context for Joseph Smith's view. And when I talked to Dan the other day, Dan Vogel on the phone, he just simply told me, he said, look, it's very simple. He said, I'm not into uh, debating with the apologists. I don't, I don't care what they think. I mean, in some respects, yeah, but they're not the important element here. I want to understand Joseph Smith. Okay, isn't that what a good historian, a good biographer would do? Well, we all know Dan Vogel is definitely one of the foremost biographers of the prophet Joseph Smith, right? So when he told me that, I, you know, that really makes sense. That's cool because it's his interpretations, it's his translations that we're looking at, right? We want to see how they hold up on a basis of comparison with what we think we know now, right? That's the whole idea. Well, the apologists want to present Joseph Smith's knowledge in such a way that it is similar to what we today know uh, well about the ancient history of Egypt, for instance. And Paul's going to slaughter John Gee when John Gee comes out on that. I so promise. Dan Vogel's going to wipe him out, too. Uh, or if they want to bring out 
the knowledge of Joseph Smith's translation of facsimile three, which I'm going to share with you tonight from Paul in ways that you're just going to laugh like hell. It is so funny how Paul just simply dismantles absolutely every defense there is to any of the facsimiles, but number three is his specialty. It always goes down to Joseph Smith. We begin and we end with Joseph Smith. Now, you know, that seems kooky because you say, wait a minute, that's what the apologists are doing. No, it's not. And that's the, that's the weirdness of this. They either have to ignore what Joseph Smith said about the book of Abraham or about the Lord Jesus Christ or about a concept of revelation or something to do in ancient Israel or whatever, or about ancient scripture or modern. They have to either ignore what Joseph Smith said or they have to distort or literally just change what he said. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> We've got the evidence. Dan Vogel has Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real have been showing this time and again from the modern church leader's point of view. Man, they don't have anything about Joseph Smith on their minds at all. Paul Osborne is one of the premier people. I know I've ranted and raved enough, but I can't, I can't over-exaggerate. Uh, I hope you're not listening to me, Paul. I don't mean to embarrass you, but seriously, your contribution is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paul is telling us now where to go to. Thank you, Paul. Very good. Follow those links that he's showing you in the chat, you guys. I'm serious. Uh, you're in for a treat. I, I am so not kidding. Uh, he takes no sass and he takes no prisoners. Now, in the terrestrial, the, the message board is broken up in celestial, terrestrial, and telestial. And in the terrestrial is where you can mud wrestle. You can get down, get dirty, and say, hey, chump. In the celestial, we insist on just nice discussion. Wonderful, friendly discussion. You can argue and refute. But you can't then turn around and say, oh, that argument is just idiotic. But in the terrestrial, baby, the fight is on. The terrestrial is the WWF of Shade's message board. You need to go there and look up Paul Osborne. It's, it's incredible. We're having a lot of fun. Look me up, too. I'm, well, I mean, I've been trying to do this series of videos on getting straight, getting clear on the Joseph Smith papyri. Dan Vogel says he wants to understand Joseph Smith. And so he is giving us clarity. Paul Osborne wants to get clear because we've been deceived. We've been deliberately confused. And we want clarity, damn it. And we're not joking anymore. We want clarity. And so that's what we're going to give you.
And I think between the whole group of everybody out there who are now discussing this wonderful topic, and there is more to learn. That's, you know, I thought two years ago it was pretty much all over. Paul Osborne had mopped up. And then he made this discovery I'm about to share with you. I know I've ranted and raved about long enough, but seriously, this is so fantastic. Uh, and you're not going to think much of it until I describe the full historic context that only a Paul Osborne could find because the criticism of him, he then went back and researched and found the motive. And he showed the motive and refuted the criticism again. To you, my friend and brother, Paul Osborne, to all of you, my audience, I drink to your good health and wonderful friendship. My bottle of Everclear, or I mean water. Yeah, see, it's Everclear. It's water. I'm going to be doing quite a bit of reading tonight because I want you to get I want you to get the flavor, the sense of Paul Osborne's personality and ideas. Okay, so here's the deal. To quote Radio Free Mormon, my other dear friend, you know what's so fun about all this is I'm making all of you guys here, I, I'm making so many cool friends. I mean, I am so blessed beyond my uh, worthiness. I love all you guys. So, okay. Paul Osborne has discovered that in facsimile number three, Well, I'll show you this one. I've got several to show you. Within facsimile number three, we have some issues that it's time we face the music with. And I'm going to show this to you and then talk with you about it. There's facsimile number three. All right. In facsimile number three, we have some serious issues. Now, one of the issues is this figure right here. Now, everybody knows that this is the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, sitting behind Abraham. Everybody knows this is the king because Joseph Smith said it was indicated in the hieroglyphs above his head, right? So there's the king. And then here is the prince as indicated in the characters above his hand. We all know this is the prince. Then there's the waiter. And the waiter is in front of the little runt here who is a slave. This is how Joseph Smith interpreted this facsimile number three, more or less. Joseph Smith gave us to understand that the hieroglyphs up here that are being identifying markers of these various characters, these hieroglyphs describe how this group of people are the Egyptians being taught by Abraham on Pharaoh's throne, and he's being taught astronomy. 
Abraham was a very wise man. The knowledge that he acquired was the knowledge through the Urim and Thummim of astronomy. That is what he said. That is what Joseph Smith taught. Paul Osborne has discovered, thank you to the Joseph Smith papers, that there's something wrong with absolutely every single one of these interpretations and identifications. Nothing here is correct. Nothing. And the one I'm going to focus on for the first part of this discussion, this wonderful Sunday night fireside, is this little runt of a fellow, Olimla, the slave, in facsimile number three. Paul Osborne has discovered, now, of course, Egyptology already knew that. I say Paul Osborne discovered. He didn't discover this, but he has discovered one of the most significant findings about this little guy right here. This guy is supposed to be Anubis. Anubis, the god. Joseph Smith shows him as a slave. So what gives? How could Joseph Smith misunderstand that? Oh, as it happens, uh, this gets ugly for Joseph Smith because of Paul Osborne's research. Osborne has discovered that I, I've got the best picture online from Paul's one of Paul's uh, discussions, and I'm going to show it to you. Paul has discovered they the Joseph Smith papers now in their publication, and this is available online. It's free. You can see this for yourself. This is the beautiful thing about this. Paul Osborne has discovered that the snout of Anubis has been chopped off. It's been hacked. Someone mutilated the Egyptian picture. We have the lead plate that Headlock carved, which is really cool because they have taken a picture of that lead plate. There it is. That's what it looks like on the lead plate. Now, Osborne, because of his desire to come to the truth of what the ancient Egyptians thought, which I believe is seriously a noble endeavor, has begun asking questions about this unique carving. Do you notice anything funny about it? I mean, besides the Spock-like ear, <laughs> which is a serious clue because that's the remnant of Anubis's ear. Can you see where the snout used to be? This is so amazing. Now I'm going to show you something else. Whoops. There's a closer close-up. 
seriously. Here's your evidence. Paul Osborne had a sharp of an FI, and I'll never forget when he whooped it up on the message board. He was so excited. He was close to peeing his pants. He couldn't sleep all night. It was a very exciting moment. And the more we talked about it and the more he looked into this, this is seriously significant, you guys. This damns Joseph Smith clear to hell, as far as I'm concerned now, after having read the full analysis of Paul Osborne. That snoot is hacked off. Let me show you. Here's the beauty of having the evidence. Now, this is interesting because when Paul showed this, Paul and Dr. Cam and uh, Dr. Exiled, there were several people that were talking with us. You can see the remnants of the snout. Actually, it comes way down here. There's the snout, and it comes up to here to his forehead. And the ear was probably up higher than that because he usually does have uh, Anubis. He's the dog god. He's a very, very important deity in ancient Egypt. Now, why would Joseph Smith... Now, Joseph Smith, of course, was involved. He was, he was in charge, and Shulam has documented this in the Times and Seasons, in the history of Joseph Smith. I'll read some of it to you. Sincerely, he's got it all down. He's got right down to the volume, the page number, and the paragraph number. You think I'm kidding, don't you? Uh, Osborne is incredible here. He shows how Joseph Smith was specifically going to the office during the printing process, during the preparation process of the facsimile carvings before they were going to be printed. And then he wanted to be in on the printing and the snout was still there after Joseph Smith had been saying that this guy was a slave from, what, 1836 on, after he translated a bit of the papyri and started to put together the, uh, well, I mean, he put together the astronomy. Uh, Dan Vogel showed, and I did a video on this, couple, the last couple videos, the astronomy. In fact, somebody number two, uh, he had worked on later on in November, October and November, in 1835, right? Uh-oh. And so, oh man, now I really messed it up. So the idea here is the snout was there. They had printed the first installment. I'm getting way ahead of my story. I'm sorry, but this is so exciting. Paul Osborne really does give us the details on this. They had already printed the first installment of the Book of Abraham, right? They were in between the, uh, if I remember how Paul put this, the first and second installment. But he had already published facsimile number one and facsimile number two, right? But in the meantime, he had been showing the papyri and the mummies for years, and he had been identifying this little character as a slave in the court of Pharaoh, but that wasn't this shape while Joseph Smith was showing it off. He had his snout. 
And just before it went into print, Joseph Smith had headlock take that snout off. You can see the you can see the chisel markings right there. You can see it's been ha you can still see the old outline. It was definitely there. And then he took it down. Look at the disproportion. If you stuck your finger in his mouth, you'd be poking his eye, right? That's not an accurate, that's not a that's not a man. That's not a guy. They're trying to turn the god into a man. And then he stupidly left the ear on. I mean, what the hell, Joe? That that's about the silliest thing. So, so the idea here is very simple. Oh, where'd my notes go? Right here. What I want to show you is, okay, here's, here's the reasoning behind this uh, atrocious thing. The reason that, now I'm summarizing, I, I pro, you, you don't want to miss this. I'm serious. And I will read, uh-oh, my computer's turned off. I will read uh, several of Paul's selections tonight, I'm hoping. I'm summarizing the entire argument of Osborne. And, and Paul, I apologize if I get some stuff wrong. You can slap me on the message boards. I promise I'm trying to give you full credit here. This is seriously huge. This is important. Now, now understand the apologists who have heard about this have already poo-pooed it. I mean, come on. You know they're going to do that. That means Paul, as the linebacker, has his arm around their ankle, and they don't think he can tackle him. But they're not to the line of scrimmage yet. Interestingly, when Brent Metcalf, uh, in his last wonderful uh, Mormonism Live with Bill Reel and Radio Free Mormon, him and Dan Bogle, just a few weeks back, uh, Paul was in the chat. And I believe, anyway, Brent disagreed. And Paul challenged him. And Paul challenged him on the message board. Brent called Robin Jensen of the church historian's office. And he asked, hey, what do you think about this? Robin Jensen, who has seen the original lead plate, agreed with Paul. He told Brent, he said, hey, uh, actually, yeah, we, we think the snout was hacked out. And so Brent came online and gracefully apologized, and they got it straightened out. They had a little bit of a miscommunication. No big deal. You know, it's not a blood feud or nothing. We're all friends trying to figure this thing out. But again, Paul got the upper hand. He's right. He's right. I've just shown you the evidence. It is crystal clear. Here's the issue. Here's what makes this so fantastically interesting, because one of the criticisms is, okay, he hacked it out. No big deal. Wrong. Wrong. Paul shows the significance. And this is huge. This is very huge. Here we go. The reason his snout was hacked off is because Smith knew that he couldn't get away with equating Anubis with a slave. And you say, but he had already been talking about it for all those years. That's true. Hear this argument out. I 
true. It's somewhat speculative at this point. That's all right. It's okay. That's how we're learning. But we've got some evidence here that I think Osborne did some fabulous legwork on. He ordered the snout hacked off to meet the teachings that he had been giving about this figure as a slave for the previous six years in the facsimiles. Joseph Smith's black man in facsimile three was labeled a slave ever since 1836. That was the common teaching. The word was already out. Yeah, okay. So images of the God and its meanings, however, were in free masonry. Ooh. Now, I personally wouldn't have ever thought of looking at the Freemasonry angle. Here's where Osborne just shines, as far as I'm concerned. And their understanding would catch Joseph Smith's problematic translation. So, in the Masonic book, and here's where Paul does some magnificent research. The origin and antiquity of Freemasonry, its rites and ceremonies, traced from ancient times to modern times in a series of essays. It speaks of Anubis as a dog-shaped deity. Now, this was very important to the Freemasons back in Joseph Smith's day because Part of their mysteries, as I also will show you, I've done a little bit of research in some Mason volumes I have tonight. I'll share with you tonight. The Egyptian angle was pretty important to the Freemasons in the 1800s. Make no mistake, Osborne finds like eight or nine Masonic references describing Anubis. Anubis was connected to the star Sirius. Sirius was a very important star to the ancient Egyptians. This was symbolized as the blazing star of Freemasonry. I'll explain the seriousness of that in just a moment. This is a symbol of, well, here's the moment, <laughs> of divine providence and prudence. This is a holy item to the Egyptians, to the Freemasons. Joseph Smith, based on 19th century thinking, stupidly mangled and mutilated the ancient Egyptian iconography of one of the most important Egyptian deities and denigrated him down to a slave status. Sucks to be you, Joe. We now have Paul Osborne. So, and here's where I have, here, here's where I want to, here's where I want to break in real quick with my own Masonic little bit of research. I can't let Paul outdo me everywhere, although he does anyway. He's rude that way. I love that man. Don't tell him I said that. But anyway, this, this little text is by 
Thomas Milton Stewart, 33rd degree, uh, past Master Mason, uh, the symbolism of the gods of the Egyptians and the light they throw on Freemasonry. Now, I didn't see Paul reference this, so here's my small contribution to Paul's magnificent discovery, and I'm more than happy to help you out, brother. No problem. This was published in 1927, but this is how the Masons understood this Anubis figure. I quote from page 96, uh, well, 95, let me start at 95. Anubis, the jackal-headed god, lord of the silent land, guide to the road of the west. Now, the road of the west was, of course, the setting sun, right? The sun makes his course through the heavens. Sun rises in the east, blazes across the sky, sets in the west, and then for another 12 hours, he's in the duat, the underworld, and he goes back around and under, and then he's reborn every morning in the east. So the directions are very important. Well, Anubis is a guide to the road of the west. That is what we see him doing in facsimile number three. Not as a slave. Joseph Smith just blew it there. That's Anubis, and he is guiding the deceased into the presence of the deity Osiris on the throne, right? He is associated with the eye of Ray as the guide of the dead. Now, the eye of the Ray, the eye of Ray, of course, is the sun. Ray is the sun god. It's not Yahoe, the earth, and whatever other Egyptian stupid invented word Joseph Smith made up for the sun. Shiny ha! <laughs> And Paul has destroyed that supposed Egyptian parallel. I'll see if I can get to it tonight. Yeah, every every moron knows shiny hod does not mean the sun unless you're an early Mormon or else your name was Joseph Smith. The name of the ray, the name of the god in Egypt is Ray the Sun. Yeah. You know, you got to know a little Egyptian. Now, John Gee and Kerry Mulstein and Michael Dennis Rhodes, all of these guys know that right? And yet they still insist on defending Shiny Ha. <laughs> Come on. Anyway, he aided in the search for Osiris, and he embalmed him. He embalmed him, and that takes us to the ridiculous approach Joseph Smith made with facsimile number one, which began on the right side now, the Book of Breathings, yeah. Then you had the Book of Breathings, and then the Book of Breathing ends with, yeah, facsimile number three, the one we're talking about, right? So this ties Anubis, ties all the facsimiles together. That white-headed bald guy in facsimile number one, and that's a whole nother video, and Paul Osborne has shared boatloads of information that I'm dying to share with you in other podcasts. Uh, that bald-headed white guy was Anubis. There's no question about that. Deveria in 1880 caught that. I mean, as, as long ago as back then, he knew something had been changed and he said so. And now Paul Osborne has found the definitive evidence in the lead plate showing that they hacked off the nose.
He watches the balance in the judgment. And this is also in another one of the Joseph Smith papyri. I, I'm, I'm really serious. Anubis is in there on the scales. He's underneath the, anyway, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. You'll see it. By the way, I'm going to be on Mormon stories, not tomorrow night. If you haven't got the, uh, that's the other announcement I was going to make. It's going to be next Tuesday, May 10th. And it's going to be at 5 p.m., not 6 p.m. Sorry, I didn't announce that at first, but there's quite a few of you there. So I'm going to be on Mormon stories, not tomorrow night, but Tuesday, next Tuesday, not this Tuesday, next Tuesday, May 10th. And I will be sharing a lot of this information with advanced extra stuff because he's going to give me a lot more time, bless his heart. So the word Anubis is a cognate of Ibis and comes from Hana Beach, the Awakener, or the Barker, the name Enoch has the same derivation. Wow, that's interesting, because Joseph Smith was definitely wanting to restore a book of Enoch following Dan Vogel's hints in his book. So he is one of conscience, therefore Anubis or conscience is always present at the judgment time here and hereafter. There's the real meaning of facsimile number three. Yeah, very, very important. And in fact, It's so important. I'm going to give you something funner to look at than my gorgeous face while I read this next part to you. Here you go. This is the subject we're talking about. Facsimile number three, right there. Now I'm reading from Pike's Morals and Dogma. We're talking about this character right here. See, this is Anubis ushering in the deceased. This is not the prince of Pharaoh. That is a woman. She is mocked. You can tell by the feather, the feather of judgment for the deceased ushered into the presence of Osiris by Anubis. That should be a jackal head. We now know the lead plate proves that this has been mutilated thanks to Paul Osborne. This is not King Pharaoh. This is Isis, the great mother of the God. You always know it's Isis by that beautiful sun disc and cow horn uh, crown that she wears. This is not Abraham. It's not immortal. It's Osiris. It's a deity. This is not Abraham teaching astronomy on Earth. Hey, Paul Osborne has his first podcast out on YouTube. You need to go watch that because he demonstrates the iconography of facsimile number three. Look at these stars up here. This scene, this whole scene is taking place not on Earth, but in heaven. That is really the context of all of this. So this character right here in Freemasonry, Isis was also aided in her search by Anubis. She is searching Osiris after he was killed and dismembered. 
Anubis helped her. He was in the shape of the dog. He was Sirius or the dog star, the friend, the counselor of Osiris, the inventor of language, grammar, astronomy, surveying, arithmetic, music, and medical science. He, Anubis, was the first maker of laws and who taught the worship of the gods and the building of the temples. This deity, Joseph Smith, has mocked and slandered and denigrated into a mere slave based on his own stupid, short-sighted racial bias and Paul Osborne has called for the church to either get this stupid shit out of their scriptures or restore Anubis to his proper place. Yeah? Amen, Osborne. So, this is huge. And I, I do mean to go ranting and raving about this. This is huge. So let's take another look, further look. While in the 1840s, Joseph Smith was building Nauvoo up, right? He was busy. He didn't get the full text of the Book of Abraham translated. But he did become a Freemason. Yeah, and so did all of the other Mormons around him. Now, I just got off the phone an hour ago. I've been going about an hour, an hour ago with my good friend, Mike Wagner. And he gave me a hint. He said, you know, you talked about this idea of, uh, we were talking about Dan Vogel's new video on Freemasonry in the Book of Mormon. Why is the Book of Mormon anti-Masonic? And we'd both watched this video, and so we were talking about it just about an hour ago on the phone. And he said, do you realize that another reason Joseph Smith might have switched to becoming a pro-Mason in the 1840s is because this was when John C. Bennett showed up? Well, I thought, hey... Mike's got an interesting point here. John C. Bennett, if you remember the history right, Joseph Smith, I mean, Bennett rose, he rose like a meteor in Mormonism. He was the second man in charge within just the first couple of days that he showed up. Joseph Smith put him right next to him. Yeah, you're my second-hand man, man. Bennett could have been the one that helped get the Masonic importance for Joseph to join a group into a common goal. All right, so he was at Nauvoo. He's been kicked out of town after town after town. He's hated. He's being persecuted. I, yeah, part of this is the whitewash, all right. But he is building up Nauvoo. He wants to build a solid community. John C. Bennett, with his Masonic 
information because he was a member. Don't forget Hiram Smith was also Joseph's brother and he was a Mason. So was his dad. Well, Joseph Smith took the hint. Okay, no more anti-Masonry. Let's flip it around and let's become Masons and let's make this thing work. In the Masonic idea, he would have begun to learn about the importance of Anubis. And this is Paul's take. He knew the Masons would not tolerate Anubis being identified with a slave, so Smith instructed Headlock to cut the, snoot, the snout off. Smith knew the person depicted on the papyrus was of divine origin as witnessed in the Masonic order. There's your motive. Now, only a Paul Osborne would think of looking at the Masons. This is very cool. He covered his tracks. Smith was already on record for incorrectly declaring the black person in facsimile three as a slave. Later, through Freemasonry, Smith learned the truth, which would prove his original revelation to be false. Therefore, he had the snout hacked off in order to make this fit his own phony narrative about a mortal Abraham. In fact, simply number three, which doesn't have any mortal in there except the deceased being ushered into the presence of Osiris. Fantastically interesting. Osborne continues looking far and wide and he finds something else significant in facsimile number two that I want to show you. This is really cool how he does this. I thought this was very well done on Osborne's part. I'm going to save that for a moment. Hang on, I've got to get this facsimile number two. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here's what I wanted to. Okay, let me, yeah, let me show you this real quick. Let me show you this real quick. Because this is really important. Uh, everywhere where Smith uh, put, oh, a human in the facsimiles, no kidding, he blew it. Everywhere for the human. Here's facsimile number one. Now notice here that this is a reconstruction. Uh, the Bob bird. There's only one bird. It's not his hand. In this particular reconstruction, the person's person lying on the couch, he's holding his own penis and Anubis is holding out his hand. This priest of Pharaoh, this idolatrous priest of Pharaoh that Joseph Smith wrongly identified is Anubis. This particular one is Lanny Bell, the Egyptologist. This is his reconstruction where there's no bird at all, but just his hands up, up by his face. And Anubis is holding out his hand, holding a cup. But both professional Egyptologists 
all Egyptologists know that facsimile number one cannot possibly be a priest. Notice that this particular head looks a lot like the head in Joseph Smith's reconstruction, whereas we know that it has to be Anubis. And there it is. There's a very good comparison right there. Sorry. See how silly? Similar. The head here looks to the head here. That's all wrong. Not, not, nothing there is right. This, the Anubis head should be there. And and through details, and I'll get on to this later, Paul has, has done a tremendous amount of study. This hunched shoulder here, this is actually the remnants of the headdress of Anubis. And when you go to the original papyri that has the lacuna and all that, we'll get into that another time. I don't want to get heavy into it at this point uh, because I want to talk about facsimile number three. However, this is also really cool, and it's pretty cotton-picking important. This theme here, this is uh, off of the papyri, and this is the gap, this is the lacuna, and it's got this absolutely stupider than dumb uh, pencil sketch of a guy looking directly. There's his eyes and his nose and his stupid-looking mouth. Uh, I wonder if that's Joseph Smith's self-portrait or something. Uh, that is so wrong, it's not even wrong. This is a much more accurate rendition there. Now, true, Lanny Bell left Anubis white, which technically, Paul Osborne is correct, Anubis should always be pictured as black because of his black fur. Anubis is always pictured as black. but So this the, the whole restoration idea of the facsimile to events the story of Abraham, that's just bogus. It's just stupid. Uh, there's nothing even maybe correct in any of that in any kind of fashion. And so Osborne has rightly taken Joseph Smith to task on that score. So let me keep going here. This is what is so cool. Oh, I was going to show you. <laughs> I get so carried away. Look, Osborne has made the uh, the Book of Abraham subject exciting, just like Dan Vogel, just like Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real. We owe these guys a tremendous debt of gratitude for, for guiding us through so many intricacies that... Uh, are actually seriously necessary. Um, this is important if we want to get accuracy to be able to get the correct view, right? So Osborne, with his sharp eye, has noticed something else here that I want to show you in facsimile number two. Now, not only should Anubis be in facsimile number one, notice that, again, Smith turned the god into a human, the idolatrous priest of Pharaoh, and that's completely bogus. Well, here, very interestingly, this central figure, this upper figure, I should say, the two feathers, he's holding a standard of power 
and on that standard is a jackal, right? So Osborne has said, Joseph Smith is on record as sharing that standard of power and it's a jackal. And so there's no way that Joseph Smith is going to get away with calling that jackal a slave. That's just completely, totally wrongheaded. And I had a, I thought I had a study. I thought I had, uh, oh, come on. I had a really cool picture. Oh, well, I thought I had a really good picture of the hypocephalus and the jackals. I did. Where did I put that? Okay. Here's a hypocephalus. Oh, I've got the hypocephalus. I mean, here's the, here's the argument about the jackal in that hypocephalus that Paul brings up that makes such a difference. This is really interesting. The jackal signifies, oh, yeah, 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 the realm of Oliblish. Now, this is one of Joseph Smith's identifications, Oliblish, right? So let's take a look at the hypocephalus as it is designated by Joseph Smith and then we'll see again the problematic nature of his interpretation. So Osborne informs us, in facsimile number two, the figure of the jackal, which is up in this upper register here, there's the standard of power. This is in the area of Oliblish, according to Joseph Smith, and it's holding the key to power in Smith's explanation. This contradicts the jackal in number three being a slave. The jackal, in fact, similarly in number two, is not a low station slave, but Smith had already published facsimile two with the jackal of power. Now, Anubis is actually the lord of the necropolis, and it's by the power of Anubis that the road to resurrection in the afterlife is opened, and the deceased ushered into the presence of Osiris for resurrection and eternal life. Now, many books on masonry in Joseph's day knew the power and divinity of Anubis. But by the 1840s, Smith and several prominent Mormons became Masons. They even founded a lodge in Nauvoo, March 1842, incorporating many elements into the Mormon temple endowment. Smith desecrated the sacred god Anubis on facsimile number three, an image that was held in remembrance in Freemasonry and a sacred symbol of their craft associating the power of Nubus to the raising of Hiram Abiff in Freemasonry. In December 1841 to March 1842, the Mormons became Masons, became Master Masons with their own lodge. So the key here is really interesting, the timing. This was in March when Joseph Smith became Master Masons with his 
with his uh, other Mormon cohorts. By May, now we're just talking two months later, man. By May 1842, Smith was in charge of preparing facsimile number three to print. One and two have already been printed in the first installment in the book of Abraham, right? So he had headlock hack off the nose at that time. Olimla, the slave, became born. Anubis's snout, form and power, is desecrated, and Joseph Smith stupidly left the pointed ear. And it's all out of whack proportion-wise in relation to the mouth, the chin, the eye, and so on and so forth. Of course, it's completely mutilated. The snout was there and the ear was also. The mouth is misshapen. Everything about the figure is mutilated. So here's where Shulam shines. Joseph Smith History, Volume 4, page 519. He says he had a direct hand in preparing and connecting and correcting the plates before they were printed. Joseph Smith said this, right, in the official history. So... Joseph Smith had the nose of Anubis hacked and called him a slave. It's a serious strike against his credibility. This is not a restoration. It is destruction. All the little hackings in the lead plate show that the snout was there. And I showed you that. I showed you that in the lead plate. And then it was removed. The outline of the snout is still visible. And Paul does have some pictures on uh, on one of his threads where he uh, emphasizes the outline. I pointed it out to you with my stick. You can see it. The significance of this is that it supports that the missing head in facsimile number one, see, I'm jumping ahead, facsimile number one is also a jackal's head. None of the humans that Joseph Smith identified in any of the facsimiles, are actually humans. They're the deities. That's how far off Joseph Smith was. Then he turned around and he mutilated the one, at least, that we're aware of and turned him into a human, right? And Lanny Bell showed you the reconstruction of the Anubis figure on facsimile number one. Smith left traces of his Americanized thinking of black men as a slave with these clumsy changes to Anubis contra Nibley. Nibley said he didn't. Nibley was full of it. Nibley was an apologist. It's too bad because his earlier work in scholarship was excellent. When he turned to the book of Abraham, Nibley just sloughed off into <laughs> poverty, man all based on misconceptions of 19th century thinking. Anubis is an Egyptian god known to Freemasonry, and Joseph Smith changed this up to avoid contradictions in his explanations between the facsimile number two Anubis with power and facsimile number three Anubis as a slave. The Freemasons would have caught on to that, and it would have mortified them. 
Deveriah said, the head in facsimile number three of Olimla, the shape, ought to be a jackal, but it was changed. We see this in the lead plate. The fraud was attested in 1886, early on. The magnified image Anubis on the lead plate confirms that fraud. So once Joseph Smith became a mason and realized that it had Anubis as a powerful god, Smith had the snout removed before he published it, and Smith was directly in charge of the plates, their publication. Now, the Joseph Smith Journal, see again, Osborne gives us the exact references, which is wonderful. The Joseph Smith Journal, 23 February 1842. He has 1st of March 1842. He has the 4th of March 1842. He has the 9th of March 1842, still working on publication, and he was still translating the Book of Abraham. He said so. Now, at this late of date, as Vogel has demonstrated with the Kirtland Egyptian papers, um, by now, the first, uh, I believe it was Abraham 1, 1 to chapter 2, verse either 16 or 18. Dan will correct me. Um, it's close. But it was in the first two chapters that he took directly off of the papyri. But you'll notice something interesting about the apologetics, especially of, say, like John Gee. Nobody touches, nobody quotes Abraham 4 and 5 and all that, because that's just simply Genesis refigured. The only changes that Joseph Smith made in Genesis was to pluralize the gods. Michael Marquart, H. Michael Marquart's excellent chapter in Robert Rittner's book on the Joseph Smith papyri demonstrates that. Two-thirds of the book of Abraham is simply taken from the Genesis account. None of that was on the papyri. Nobody can find Genesis in the papyri, right? He just took it out of the scripture from the Jews. <laughs> He's always in translation mode, making additions and corrections. Osborne gave us the references. The facsimile three set to be published on May 16th, 1842, Smith was very involved in all the activities with the publishing. He was supervising the printing process. He was the editor-in-chief, make no mistake about this. Apologists want to pull Joseph Smith away from this too. It can't be done. He said in his journal and in the official history, he was in charge and Hadlock had his own signature put into the plates. Did you know that? Yeah, Headlock, look, he was the artist. He was the one putting in all the work. He was the one pressed for time because all of a sudden now there's a major change. Oh, change the look of that figure. Take off the nose. Headlock probably disagreed. This is what Osborne says. I, I have a tendency to side with him. I mean, he already had, had finished the plate, and then Smith comes along and says, nope, I've received a revelation. Hack off that nose. He That's a slave, and he's got to look more human, not like the dog. And so Headlock probably grudgingly hacked. Granted, this is speculation somewhat, all right, but hacking the nose is not. We have that evidence. 
So, on Olimla the Slave, now, I know Paul has discussed this extensively, and uh, there is a lot more than what I'm about to show you, but I really do have to share this, because this shows us the extent of how desperate the apologists are to try to find uh, something authentic with the Book of Abraham facsimiles comparing uh, Smith's uh, explanations, his interpretations, his translations with modern Egyptology, which, of course, can't be done. Uh, there is no match, right? In facsimile three, there's absolutely nothing accurate at all. And yet Michael Dennis Rhodes came out and said, well, we're, we're pretty confident that pretty much everything Joseph Smith interpreted in the facsimiles is accurate according to modern day Egyptological conceptualizations. I, I mean, that's a bald-faced lie. Nothing matches. Nothing. I can't over-exaggerate that. Hugh Nibley and Val Sederholm parse the name. Oh, I was going to write this. Dad Gummit. I'm going to write this right here on this right now while I share this. I want to show you the desperation. Uh, here's how they both parse the name of Olimla. Olimla. And then they identify an Egyptian name and they say this hypothetical Egyptian name, uh, Olimla, works well with uh, re. I'll show it to you here in just a sec. Imen, Imen, and Ray. Okay. Now, this is how the apologists say that these two names are, are possible. Right there. Now, this is the name Olimla, O-L-I-M-L-A-H, Olimla. And they say the Egyptian word re-imen-re, which means great is Amun-Ray. Uh, and Osborne just crucified him. Nibley actually tried to make this in uh, Abraham in Egypt, page 588. So the reality is that all of this is just hogwash. Anubis has nothing to do with Ammon Ray. Olimla, the name that Joseph Smith said this slave was, is an invention. There is no Egyptian name, Olimla. There is no correlation with any other Egyptian name. There can't be. And even with this desperate attempt to at least make sure that one of their running backs got to the line of scrimmage, the original line of scrimmage, so they could try to advance the football, 
Osborne as the linebacker caused them, not only did he tackle them behind the line of scrimmage, they fumbled the football and Paul grabbed it and ran in for the touchdown. This has nothing to do with Ammon Ray. It has nothing to do with facsimile three figure six, who is the Egyptian god Anubis. Olimla is not an Egyptian name. That's final. So we again see the interesting process of the apologists not even understanding the nature of the evidence that they have, such as that lead plate and the demonstrating of the hacking of the snout, right? Once it was pointed out to them, then they say, oh, well, yeah, of course, we've known that all along. Bullshit. Paul Osborne showed them that. And what this demonstrates is Joseph Smith cheated he desecrated the Egyptian religion. He completely blasphemed Anubis as one of the most sacred Egyptian gods. And Joseph Smith turned him into a slave. And we're supposed to swallow that bullshit swill? No, thanks. I'll take Paul Osborne on my side any time, man. See how this works. Then they turn around and they try to say, well, Olimla is an actual Egyptian name. No, Olimla is not an actual Egyptian name. Well, Olimla has correlations to Amun Ray is great. No, because Anubis, who is actually that slave, is not associated with Amun Ray. Don't you kind of get the feeling? that <laughs> I mean really <laughs> Mormon apologetics has nothing man it's sand sifting through their fingers and they're trying to tell you look at this fantastic sand castle we've built there's nothing there it's already slipped through your fingers you're empty handed you've Got nothing, zero, zip, nada, zilch, nine, no. They're so desperate. And in fact, you know, and I've actually said this, and Paul Osborne certainly has, uh, the uh, four idolatrous gods under the lion couch, in fact, assembly number one. Joseph Smith invented four really silly sounding names. And of course, the Egypt, the apologists think that we can find some Hebrew parallels with some Hebrew uh, words and elements and show that, hey, they're authentic ancient names, which is entirely 100% beside the point they're supposed to be Egyptian. Joseph Smith said so, right? Yeah. So anyway, man, Paul, I wanted to get through so much more of your fantastic material. I I'm sorry. I'm essentially out of time. Dadgummit. However, really seriously, with Paul's blessing, I will be happy to give you 
next week a whole lot more on other areas. Um, I think I was right to emphasize this Anubis snout issue because now we know we we can say with clear consciences we can say directly Joseph Smith fraudulent fraudulently mutilated the actual iconography in order to present his own stupid bullshit history and bullshit theology and bullshit bias and bullshit racism. It's in the open now. You can see this lead plate online. So that's where Paul got it, the picture I showed you. So, I mean, you know, uh, we don't want, it, it makes us look like we're, uh, being antagonistic, it makes it look. It makes us look like we want to be enemies. No, we want clarity. You know, the apologists completely keep bringing in fundamental, irrelevant silliness. There's one proof. There's another proof. Rao Kiang, meaning the expanse, that's Hebrew. There is no Hebrew on hypocephalus facsimile number two. Yeah, Joseph Smith is saying Rao Kiang. Oliblish is Egyptian. Oliblish is not an Egyptian word. It does not have anything to do with any kind of God. It's a nothing term. God sitting upon his throne, he took this actual hieroglyph from another part of the papyri. I think I showed that last week when I showed he also filled in these with hieratic from the book of breathings of all. Kolob, that is a completely made up word. It is not Egyptian. Well, so they find... Uh, Semitic word parallels, kalb from the Arabic means heart, flip-flop, the center, you know, the, the ponderous weight of gravity, etc. None of that has anything to do at all with the Egyptian hypocephalus. And then the earth in its four quarters, that's probably his best approach. It's been somewhat granted, but not totally because there are Enish go Andash, God the Sun in Egyptian. That is pure bunk. None of that is real. This is just Joseph Smith fantasy making up words. And then you got the Ithophallic deity upside down, of course, uh, which is the god Min. God sitting upon his throne with a heart on. That's the ethophallic deity. So, I mean, <laughs> we're not trying to be enemies and we're not trying to be antagonistic, but you have to call an ace of hearts a red ace of hearts. You have to call the ace of spades 
the ace of spades. Yes, we know you want it to be the seven of diamonds. It's not. Just because you say it is doesn't make it accurate and true and real. Yeah. So it's time to redeem Anubis to his rightful place of honor and glory. Now, everywhere I look in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, everywhere I read about in the coffin texts, I don't see a lot of vignettes in the coffin texts. I've got two beautiful copies, Raymond Faulkner and Carol Andrews' edition of Raymond Faulkner's analysis of the papyri of Annie, and it's full, gorgeous, sumptuous color plates. Anubis is nowhere desecrated as a human slave. That's just wrong. I, I believe Paul Osborne is correct in telling the church, pull your heads out of your uninspired butts and quit mocking a genuine ancient religion with your heinous idiocy, imagining it's a revelation from your God to the total truth when it's pure garbage. Yeah, that's harsh. But for hell's sake, how long are they going to keep printing this stupid, uninspired, incorrect trash before they get the hint? It takes it from the outside, doesn't it? Hey, the only reason we have the Joseph Smith Papers Project, the only reason that the church magnificently published all of these fantastic photos of the papyri is because all the rest of the world was saying, hey, yo, eggheads, you uninspired dolts, an old fogies sitting on your high towers in your comfortable chairs in Salt Lake City doing absolutely nothing except hiding your history like a bunch of punk cowards. You need to come clean. Your whitewashed history is bullshit and we're not going to take it anymore. And they finally started to show it all. Right? When the outside pressure got strong enough, Mormonism had no choice but to, but to act. Right. So let's rehabilitate the Egyptian deities, Osiris, the Lord and God of the entire underworld, the power of resurrection for the ancient Egyptian religion. Isis, the great mother of the gods, she gave birth to gods and creation. The ancient mother goddess, she needs to be restored to her proper place. It's not an all-male priesthood. Get your patriarchal bullshit out of the ancient Egyptian true religion and let its own glory shine forth. It's time to put Anubis back. It's time to quit making men of women. Mott is not the son of anyone. What in the 
hell are you still publishing that stupid bullshit for? John Gee knows this. Carrie Molstein knows this. I guarantee you Michael Dennis Rhodes knows this. Then why are you still trying to defend Joseph Smith's lame, stupid, false interpretations? I second Paul Osborne all the way on all of this. Seriously. You desecrate others' religions and their deities and their meaning of their idea of salvation for your own benefit so that you can become a multi-billionaire, stingier than everybody else all combined organization. And then you wonder why people don't like you? Well, do you want me to mail you in a dollar so you can buy a frickin' clue as to why? <laughs> I mean, damn, what's it gonna take for you old bats to wake the hell up? Duh! Ask your own idiot Egyptologists that you pay to defend Joseph Smith, and they fail at doing. They're making you look stupid stupider than you already do, right? That's the issue. Seriously, it's time to tell Mormonism to get those facsimiles fixed properly. We have accurate Egyptological understanding of what they actually should be, and your stupid Joseph Smith shit isn't it. Even if he did claim he got it from God, God didn't know the truth either, apparently, because it's wrong. <laughs> How can I say this any plainer, right? <laughs> I mean, my goodness, it's amazing. So anyway, I didn't mean to rant and rave, but uh, I, I, am, I am sharing the... The heartfelt plea, the power of Osborne's research and his very appropriate approach to the ancient Egyptian religion that all Mormon apologists and leaders uh, have just desecrated, and they still continue it, and they think they're being holy. You're not being holy. You're being real asses about it, and you do need to repent. And Dallin Oaks! You do need to apologize. Don't give me that horse shit that the church doesn't apologize. Yes, you should. And I'll bet you I can find a lot of people that will sign a petition with me who say the same thing. You want to bet? You're too arrogant. You're too cocky. You think you know it all and you don't. And you're dead damn wrong about the entire Book of Abraham thing. And we're happy to show you that. You know, do you want to learn or do you want to be a dodo with your brother, Jeffrey Holland, and say, oh, well, I don't know how it got translated, but it got translated into the Word of God. <laughs> God, give me a break already. Holy nightmare, man. I realize you guys are probably under a lot of pressure, but, you know, tough luck. 
You accepted the calling. Why don't you honor it for once? That could be impressive. I'm just saying, you know, don't shoot me. I'm the messenger. But time to pay attention. So anyway, that's enough of me ranting and raving. Holy shish kebab. I didn't mean to rant and rave. However, so um, that's my story and I'm sticking with it. Now, truly, seriously, next week I, I, I will be, I, I have to share Paul's reviews of, of uh, well, you know, um, John Gee's new book and Jeff Lindsay's Mormon apologetic attempt to make John Gee's book powerful on the papyri, stuff like that. Um, Paul's take on that is so wonderful. It's so interesting. You really, I, I really want to read a lot of that stuff to you and how he takes on John Gee head on and challenges his translations and Kerry Mulstein and so on and so forth. So uh, I am going to continue on uh, with further of Paul Osborne's analysis and his his views and his interpretations. Um, he takes on Dan Peterson. He takes on Stephen Smoot. Uh, he takes them all on, not in an antagonistic way, at least not in the Celestial Forum, but he is trying to show them that what you Mormon apologists are doing that is so obviously silly is you're trying to defend Joseph Smith in his mistakes. And it can't be done that way. And the real kicker is they are mistakes. Paul Osborne shows you the evidence, man. I've been showing you the evidence. Dan Vogel's been showing you the evidence. Brent Metcalf has been showing you that. Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon and Robert Rittner and Ed Ashman and Stephen Thompson. They've been sh the Tanners, Gerald and Sandra Tanner. Everyone's been showing you the mistakes. Robert Rittner, and it's getting worse and worse and worse for you, the longer you keep trying to find something, anything, no matter how utterly stupid it is, to defend it when you can't. You can't, well, I mean, you can try, but we're all waiting for you. We can't wait till you receive a revelation that the catalyst theory is the truth. Oh, please do. Give us that revelation soon. <laughs> like Vogel has said, and I will reiterate it, and I will say, we're ready for you. We really are. We're ready for the catalyst theory. I promise. You won't like it. And that's all you have left. So, you know, what you need is a miracle, and... It's not going to show up in this one. Sorry to inform you, but it's just not. It, it can't. So anyway, all right. Thanks, you guys. Hey, uh, I hope I hope you guys have all had fun. Uh, oh, hey, T.O. Yeah, rest in peace, Robert Rittner. Truly. So grateful for his fantastic work. Yes, thank you, Paul Osborne. That was beautiful. 
Yeah, Tom Miller, Hobgoblin, Doug Lyman, Doug Vincent. Yeah, Tom Miller. All of you guys. I hope uh, Vogel enjoyed this too. Uh, anyway, everyone, uh, thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you for your support. Thank you for your friendships, your enjoyment, your chat family that we've all kind of created. Hey, Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, Bill Real and Radio Free Mormon are having the queen of the anti-Mormons, Sandra Tanner, on Mormonism Live, man. That is going to be great. So I'm looking forward to seeing all you, my buddies, friends, brothers and sisters, enemies, everybody and anybody to watch that Mormonism live. That'll be good. Then next Sunday, I'll do Paul Osborne. And then the Tuesday after that Sunday, I'll be on Mormon Stories with John DeLynn and Gerardo. Ooh, Gerardo, you're awesome. Uh, he has told me that he has all of the pictures converted to computer images ready to use. We're going to have a ball showing you visuals like you have never seen before on my Mormon Stories uh, podcast. It's going to be a ball. So, oh, and Radio Free Mormon just recently finished his second uh live session with John DeLynn on Mormon Stories. If you haven't seen that, that's also available also. And don't forget again, our dear friend Dan Vogel has turned in another manuscript. So within however long, you know, three to six months, hopefully, or whatever, he'll have another book out. I'm sure he'll let us know. And then we can tout that here on our live session. So I hope you guys have had a fun Sunday night fireside. I've had a ball being here with you. Uh, I just, I appreciate absolutely every one of you. Yeah, baby. <laughs> you got to end with that. Boy, that's becoming my hallmark. Okay, here we go. Have we refuted Joseph Smith's translations of the book of Abraham? Yeah, baby. Have we refuted Joseph Smith's interpretations of the facsimiles of the book of Abraham? Yeah, baby. And have we shown that there is still yet many great and important things yet to be revealed concerning the papyri, the book of Abraham, the relationship of the Kirtland Egyptian papers, etc.? Yeah, baby! <laughs> Emphasis. Yeah, baby! That's what I'm talking about. So, you guys bring out the best in me, man. You're awesome. So, okay. You're very welcome, Paul. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to talking to you on the message board. Oh, hey, hey, Dan Vogel just said May 18th, Metcalf and Vogel again. All right. Yeah, baby. May 18th. Mark that on your calendar. Yeah. Metcalf and Vogel again. Fantastic. Yeah, Lamb Chop, we are working on developing a t-shirt with the sunglasses and the mustache and yeah, baby, on it. Someone pointing, you know, the guy pointing, yeah, baby, yeah, baby, BYP say, yeah, baby. All right, yeah, that's enough of that, my gosh. Okay, thanks all you guys. You have a good evening, and I will see you Wednesday night, and then I will see you next Sunday night. Same time, same place, with a completely new analysis of other areas of this utterly, fantastically interesting subject on Joseph Smith Papyri, and we are getting clear.
definitely. Yeah, baby. It's about time. Yeah. Love all you guys. I got to go. See you. See you Wednesday. All righty. Hasta la vista, baby.